We are studying decision-making. And as we started out six weeks ago talking about the whole issue of decision-making, we started out by really just making the observation this is one of the most terrifying things that people have to do, make decisions. And, uh, and so we have been looking at this over the past number of weeks, and we've come through quite a journey here of saying basic to godly, wise decision-making is looking into the fog of the future and accepting we don't know what's in it. We don't know what's coming. The future is uncertain, and we cannot get a place of certainty about what is in that fog, what's on the other side of it. We just don't know. And what we have labored to see in the Word of God is that Proverbs and really the whole Scriptures commend to us an acceptance of that uncertainty. Commend to us that we are truly creatures following God when we look into the fog and we realize we don't know what's in there and it's not our place to know what's in there. It's our place to take the next step. And so we've talked about the fact that we, we don't want to be people who make a big decision. We want to be people who, in the wisdom of God, make lots and lots of small decisions. We want to take the big decisions of our life, break them down, line them up, and take them one at a time, one step at a time into the fog. And we know that as we do that, the Lord will lead us through. Uh, and so we've been talking about all of these kinds of things. We've also been talking along the way about the need for us to be honest with ourselves about the past decisions that we've made that were wrong, not revise our motivations and commit serial sincerity as so much of our society does. We need to be the people who say, we got it wrong. We had mixed motivations, the wrong motivations won out, we made the wrong decision, we did the wrong thing. If we do this, we're confessing to God as we go along, we blew it. We made mistakes, we sinned more than making mistakes. We strayed from your path and now we're paying attention, we want to get back on your path. And so we've been talking a lot about this this notion, and I can really sum it up this way, that God did not come in Jesus Christ, give you his Holy Spirit to remove from you the responsibility to make decisions. If you are approaching spirituality by saying, God, just make the decision for me. You make the call. You send neon arrows flashing into my life and just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But I don't want to make this decision. Then I have, I have laid it down as candidly as I can. You're worshiping an idol. You want a God of gimmicks who will answer all of your questions and give you the certainty you crave. The real God walks us through the uncertainties. 
He walks us through it as we make one decision at a time. And he is not a puppet master God who kind of moves us passively toward his goals. He is the teacher God, the disciple-making God. Our God is Jesus who walks with us and says, this is what is in front of you right now. Make your decision. Will you trust me? Will you fear me? We've been talking about all of these things, and we now come to really the summit of this issue, and that is what's the role of faith in decision-making? We all have some castle that we retreat to, some fortress, some stronghold, a source of confidence, a source of security in our decision-making, and we hole up in our fortresses and we want to remain there safe and secure. What is that fortress? What is the security of your life? It could be money. It could be a kind of false certainty that with your reason and expertise, you can actually solve the riddle of the future if you just have enough data. If you just go deep enough into research, you can tell what's going to happen in the future. Maybe that's your security. Maybe your security is a gimmicky spirituality where God seems to present a way forward to you, gives you this neon sign in a moment, and you're saying, I believe in that outcome, and I am never going to deviate from my belief that God is going to deliver me this thing that I saw in that moment. Maybe that's your fortress of security. This morning, I want you to tear that fortress down, whatever it is. And let's go into the promises of God and the power of God because he guarantees only a few outcomes. Forgiveness of sins, security in Christ, eternal life in heaven with God. Guaranteed. We will not suffer loss of those things. But money, health, success... None of these things are guaranteed. None. In fact, in this fallen world, trouble is guaranteed. So the question is, are we going to trust God regardless of outcomes? And so what we're going to talk about this morning is this, this combination of our responsibility, and God's power, grace, and sovereignty over our lives. How does this work together? What are we really trusting God for? And how does that operate? We're going to look, first of all, at the bookends of this passage, verses 1 and 9, and we're going to see that there are two plans operating in every decision on this earth. And then we're going to look at the wisdom of God in between those bookends, we're going to look at uh, the real priorities that should govern our decision-making. And uh, then we will give some directions going forward. So let's dive in and talk about the bookends of this passage. Verses 1 and 9. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue 
is from the Lord, one bookend. The other bookend at verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There are two plans in operation in every decision that we make. One of those plans is obviously the human plan. That human plan is spoken of in both of these Proverbs, both verse 1 and verse 9 reiterate that human beings plan their way. Human beings make their decisions, even if by default. So verse 1 says, the plans of the heart belong to man. What goes on in our thought processes, what goes on in our motivations, our ambitions, our scheming about the future, and what goes on in our plans for our money, our homes, our jobs, careers, ministries, all of these things are being weighed and processed in our hearts. And the Lord says through Solomon here, the plans of the heart, all of that thought belong to man. That's our responsibility. That's our activity. It's what we're doing. Verse 9 puts it this way. The heart of man plans his way. This is very straightforward. This is the easy part of the sermon here. This is not rocket science. You own your mind. Your soul belongs to you. Your memories, your plans, your desires, your talents, all of these things, out of what your fears, all of these things belong to you your emotional wounds, everything that informs all of your decisions in your heart, that's all yours. And that is the information you're using to make your decisions. So, at one level, every decision that is made in this world is a human decision. And part of the message of Proverbs is human decisions are real. Human decisions are consequential. They have consequences, is another way of saying that. Human decisions can start out well-motivated. There is a way that seems right to a man. The path ahead might seem correct, but that decision, even though it starts out well, still has consequences if it is unwise. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. Our decisions matter. Now, why, why do I emphasize this so much? Because in an abusive culture in which um, so many of us are laboring to recover from the actions of abusers, physically, emotionally, inside of our families, authority figures abusing their authority over us, all of these kinds of things, in this kind of society, what we need to understand is that God has not called us to be puppets. And when abusers have come along in our lives and sought to imprison us in their will, and to deny us this thing I'm going to call agency, the power to make a decision. When people come along and deny you that, 
you come to feel that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what road you take, no matter what door you try to open, nothing matters that you do. And this is profoundly wrong and unbiblical. Proverbs has been teaching us it matters what you do and what you decide. Another reason to emphasize this is that in our society we are deeply cynical. As if our whole society is stuck, the economy's going down the tubes, the government's corrupt, the law can't be trusted, nothing is going to go right in our society. So it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether you handle your money well. It doesn't matter whether you tell the truth. It's all going down the tubes anyway. False. Proverbs teaches us that in a fallen world, godly people making decisions in the fear of him to follow the path of wisdom, those decisions matter. And they have consequences too, just as the unwise and sinful decisions have consequences. So the human plans matter, but in every single decision that is made on this earth, there is another set of plans operating. God's plans. Verse 1 puts it this way. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Interesting. What an odd way to put that. You ever said something that you hadn't planned to say? Like every day? <laughs> Every sermon. <laughs> Every sermon. I'm, I, I get up here and I say, okay, this morning I'm not going to get off track. I'm going to stick with the plan. I'm not going to do what I did last week. And it's all out the window by the time we get through the sermon because the heart of the preacher plans his sermon, but the answer of the tongue comes from the Lord. When I was first in ministry... Um, I had graduated from seminary back in 1996 and was looking for a church. And uh, in the context of all of that, I found a group of people um, who wanted to restart a church. Uh, they had gotten down to four, count them, four people. They had a, an old building built on a post and pier foundation in the outskirts of Salem. It was that old. Um, and uh, they wanted to have a ministry there and restart it. There was another church that I had preached at. It was a church about this size in the suburbs of Portland. Uh, and uh, it was, um, had a nice new facility and I'd preached there, had been received well. Well, I'd gotten down the way, down the road with these folks of, uh, of saying, let's, let's do this here, let's restart this little church and let's see what the Lord might do with this. Um, because I hadn't heard from that uh, larger, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, 
paying work that was up in, in Portland. And so I said, well, let's see what the Lord will do. And I had committed, by that time, 12 people were involved, so we had tripled in size. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Uh, so I, I committed to them. I said, I will do this. And then I got a phone call. And the phone call was from the church in Milwaukee, suburb, not that Milwaukee, the suburb of Portland, saying, we'd really like to talk to you. What do you do? I've already made my commitment, right? Made my promises. But there's making promises and then there's actual opportunities, right? The plans of the heart belong to man. I know what I wanted. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Something happened in that phone conversation. It's like a switch went on and I was answering and saying, I've already made a commitment. I'm sorry I can't talk to you, but I'll be uh, praying for your success in the future. Switch went off, hung up the phone, done. That was an interesting way to feel after that phone call. And um, you're probably expecting me to say, so it all went great, right? Everything succeeded and the Lord just brought all these people together and it was fantastic. It was the miracle that we all want to read about and that you wanted to experience. No, no, that's not what happened. It was phenomenal. It was also tragic because where the Lord starts to work, sin starts to work. And none of the works that uh, we attempted in that decision, none of them succeeded because they couldn't survive the sins. And um, so what am I to conclude from that as I look at this passage? Well, I look back on that and say, the Lord led me into that fog. He led me through it. He provided for us as a couple every single week. He led us out the other side of it to another work. And he led us to 12 years of fruitful ministry out in Orland. And so as I look back at this, I look back at that moment and say, that was absolutely the right decision. We'll talk about this more in a moment. But the, even if it were mistaken, even if it were too idealistic, the Lord still led me through all of this. The man's heart's, heart plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I had plans. None of them came to pass, not one, except they did kind of come to pass right here where we're sitting because everything I learned there came into play here when we restarted this ministry. So uh, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue 
is from the Lord. This is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God's plans win. That's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. We make our plans, we do our things, and we are responsible for those plans. But God takes them and he turns them his direction. Um, If you've ever had small children, you know this thing about following a toddler around or perhaps a, a little baby who can crawl. They get mobile and they start wanting to do stuff and you can tell where they're headed. They look at something and their eyes get real big and they, they're over there to, to do stuff. They have made their decision, the children. But there are two plans operating in any household. There's the plans of the child and then there's the plans of the parent. The plans of the child are completely free motivated by whatever's inside that child. Obedience, disobedience, curiosity, fear, motivated by what is in that child and freely working themselves out in the decisions that they make and often suffering the consequences of those decisions. But there's another plan, dads. Dad wins. Because dad sees the lamp that is on the table that is sitting that that is covered with the tablecloth and he sees the little hand go up to pull the tablecloth and dad just picks up the lamp and the tablecloth comes down and nothing worse happens right this is how this works two plans you've got yours God has his God wins where does faith come in in our decision-making, it comes in when we have met our responsibilities as best we can and we say, Lord, you've got this and I'm going to trust you. Let's dive into that. The wisdom to trust God. Let's look at what is between these two bookends. Verses 1 and 9 say the same thing in different words. Verses 2 through 8 unpack some of the considerations in the fact that there are two plans in, every, in, in any human decision. Verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Two ways of making a decision. There's the human way and then there's God's way of making a decision. In the human way of making a decision, we look at our motivations and we say, that's right, I've got this, I have the right priorities, I am a good person, and I am going to make the right decision here because I know what's best for me. Every person looks at himself as pure in his own eyes. So there's our measurement, and the, the first indication that our measurements may be a little bit off is that we disagree, right, about what is right and who is right and what is good and who is good. So somebody's measurements are off. It's just not mine. All of my motivations are pure, but yours, I, they're pretty questionable. Um, so... so There's this other measurement for motivations. 
All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit who actually knows whether the motivations are pure or not. God does. Who knows the mixture of motivations? Mine are mixed. I don't know about yours, but I've got good motivations and then I've got bad ones. If I'm aware of the bad ones, then I can do something about that and I try. But maybe I'm not aware of them and that's actually the whole problem is that in our normal settings, we're often not aware of our bad motivations at all. We're not aware of our selfishness. That's just the air we breathe. And so we need this objective measurement. When we're making decisions, I would just encourage you, as I have in the past, stop making decisions based on the purity of your motivations. Just don't do it because they're not pure. Mine aren't. They're always mixed. And if our motivations are mixed, how can we really make good decisions based on, I'm a good person, I know what's best for you. No, I don't. I've had plans in the past. I just told you where I had plans in the past. It didn't work out and it was better. So this is a key point of saying, the Lord knows we make our decisions in faith step by step and our job is to conform our actions and our motivations to what godliness is, step by step, as best we can, and the Lord handles the rest. So there's a clear division of labor here, if you can put, put it this way. Our labor is to become like God. God's labor is to take care of us. The more we become like God, the more certain we are that he will take care of us. This should be sounding a lot like faith. The track record with God taking care of us when we follow him and obey him, that's what we're really aiming for, and that's why verse 3 is here. Verse 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord. Now, I'm going to read these two back to back. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your way to the Lord. What's the implied reason? Because he knows what's in your spirit. He's weighing it. He's evaluating it. He's canceling out the stuff that is evil, selfish, ignorant. He's actually dealing with that in the decisions and he's carrying you forward based on his plans, not yours. So the word here actually is roll, not commit. This is actually saying roll your work to the Lord. So you got to picture a big truck backing up. Uh, we had a uh, a load of gravel delivered to our front yard when we made it drought friendly and so the the truck backed up it was full of gravel and it, it was also full of a couple of really big stones that we wanted to place in, in strategic and beautiful places so uh, it's all on the truck now how is it going to how is it going to get off the truck well, I can get my shovel and I can shovel it out of the truck 
But that just doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound like fun. So uh, they have this thing on the truck that allows you to, to lift the back of the truck. And this amazing things ha thing happens. Gravity takes over and all those stones just roll or slide. But we're going to say roll because that's the illustration here. They roll <laughs> off the back of the truck. And they hit the, the pavement or whatever. And they sit there and then you can spread them. This is saying, roll it off. You've done your work. You've taken your responsibility. You've made your decision. You cannot finally determine or control what is going to happen from that work. You can't. Even with the most skilled work, you cannot determine the outcome. Roll it off. You roll it into the hands of God. He takes it and He does something with it. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Twenty years later, my plans have been established from the mid-1990s. Why? Because at that point, we just had, by the grace of God, the sense to say, well, this is the thing that the Lord has called us to do right here. We're going to do it, and we're going to roll it off. We're going to let him handle it. He can handle this. So, motivations are an issue. We need to stop founding our decisions on our motivations because they're not as good as we think they are, we need to commit, roll our work off into the hands of God who knows our motivations and knows his plans for us. Secondly, justice. Another consideration in all of the decisions that are made in this world. People make wicked decisions. So does that mean that God's not sovereign? He kind of, it, it all kind of wobbled there for a little bit when that wicked person made that decision and God didn't really have control at that moment. No. Verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. And we want to stop there and just say, God only does uh, certain things. He doesn't do other things. Look at the rest of verse 4. Look at it very closely. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. It's a little ambiguous, isn't it? What day of trouble? Is it the day of trouble that is brought on the wicked by the wrath of God in his judgment and justice? Yes. But it could also be my day of trouble. I look back on encounters with wickedness in my life and I come to a funny conclusion. The Lord made that period for me to equip me in some way that I would not 
have recognized in advance and, even if I had recognized it, would not have chosen. He made that day. He made that trouble. He contained it. He protected. He provided. He walked me through it. And he will do it again. The Lord made the wicked even for the day of trouble. I don't care how you read this or which way you take that phrase. There is the plan of God even for the wicked. So even if you are looking at a decision in front of you and saying, this does not feel safe for me. It doesn't feel safe to make this job change. It doesn't feel safe to make this investment. It doesn't feel safe to pursue this line of work or this career, whatever it may be. It doesn't feel safe to form a relationship with this person as a potential spouse because there are wicked people out there. Some of us are absolutely paralyzed by the wickedness of the world and unable to make decisions because we're just afraid that somebody's going to come after us from every angle possible. This is saying, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord not only knows your motivations and your heart and has fully weighed your spirit, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. If they attack you, if they come after you, Who's got this after all? God does. Who's responsible for the wickedness? The wicked are. Because a man's heart plans his way. But even when they make their plans, the Lord is going to take those things and he is going to redirect them in our life. He's going to turn those things if we follow him in faith. He's going to turn them to our redemptive benefit. He's going to redeem those things and turn them into wisdom for us. Let me pause here and just ask you, do you believe this? This is very important. This changes the way I make decisions, and it'll change the way you make decisions. Stop making decisions out of fear of the wicked and fear of trouble. Trouble will come. It simply will. There is no way out of trouble. In fact, Paul says, everyone who desires to live a righteous life before God will see persecution. That's just the way things are in this world. To try to make decisions out of fear of trouble is a grave mistake and will lead to paralysis. Now, this is not saying that you should just kind of walk into trouble and when you see it there, just kind of just blunder into it, convinced that God's going to take you through it. That's called folly in the book of Proverbs. The wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves. So this is not about being reckless. This is about saying, I don't see any trouble. I don't see any sin. So I'm going to do this work and I'm going to roll this off to God and he's going to handle this. Justice is in God's plan. Verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is 
really of disappointment to God. He cries when he sees arrogance and he wishes people would just love him. Is that what you read here? <laughs> what was that word? Abomination. Uh, an abomination is when you get the stench of it and you want to hurl. That's an abomination. It's a stink, a corruption that is beyond offensive. It is physically repulsive in the extreme. Arrogance is an abomination to the Lord. He looks at it and he wants to hurl. In fact, now that, it, now that I say that, Revelation actually says this, doesn't it? You're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Get one or the other or I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So I actually got that one right. <laughs> so... Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Listen, if God looks at wickedness and arrogance around you and sees it and smells it, what's his response going to be? Justice. Or it's going to be a grace so great that it is greater even than arrogance and it overcomes it and softens it it's going to be one of those two. And given that, are you secure from the arrogant? Yes, you are. Because you have done your work, you've done good decision-making, you've rolled that work off to the Lord's hands. He's got it. And if there are arrogant people interfering with your work, what's going to happen to them? They're an abomination to the Lord. The Lord will take care of this one way or the other, either mercifully or justly. You're safe. You're squinting into the fog, the uncertainty of the future. You're safe. The, the uncertainty cannot harm you. Um, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. When the scriptures say to you, be assured, surely, truly, truly, I say to you, these phrases are given to us to say, don't pass this by. Notice this, the arrogant will be punished. Even the grace of God to the arrogant, and I speak as an arrogant person, the grace of God comes in a powerful and flaming form. And if you are saved out of arrogance, it's because the flames have consumed all the dross and you've got nothing left but faith in God. So rest assured, the Lord's got the, the arrogant and the wicked, both in his mercy and in his justice. So... Can you make decisions based on your motivations? No, you have to make them on the basis of the justice of God and his um, understanding of you and of everyone else around you. Verse 6, 
By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This is saying that the way to make decisions is by these priorities of steadfast love, faithfulness, and the fear of the Lord. Let's go back to that moment when I got that phone call from that paying job. Remember the dilemma. I had given my word. Foolishly or not, I had given it. I told them I would do this with 12 people. So you get the call and a competing offer comes in there. What's the answer? The grace of God to me was to give the answer of the tongue at that moment that was the answer of steadfast love and faithfulness. And that was not me. That was the Lord taking over that phone call, giving the answer, and away we go. I can't claim credit for that because my heart had other plans. So this is saying that a decision to honor steadfast love and faithfulness will cover over iniquity, especially in the steadfast love of Jesus Christ and the steadfast faithfulness of Jesus Christ. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil, just knowing that I cannot go serve as a pastor and lie to 12 people in my promise that I made to them. Can't do that. How am I supposed to go be a good pastor to another church having been unfaithful in the promises that I made to the previous one? That's not going to work, is it? So we turn away from evil by the fear of the Lord. So there's a principle that's developing here. The Lord's got all of this. He's got all of his plans. My responsibility is to open up my plans to his principles. That's my responsibility. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Final point here is peace. When we act in faith and make decisions by the wisdom of God in this manner, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The Lord sovereignly overrules even the bad intentions of people who want malicious things for their neighbors. Even if someone is coming after you, the Lord will impose peace on that situation after a time. The trouble, when it accomplishes his purpose, he will finish it and he will move you through it and move you on. The Lord makes even our enemies to be at peace with us when our ways please him. So how is this working again? We fulfill our responsibility of opening up our plans to his principles. And we're trusting him with the fruit of our work. And we're saying, okay, you really do have this. Even the people who are coming after me, you've got them too. When a man's ways please the Lord, the Lord steps in and makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues 
within justice. It's better. Why? Because you have peace. Revenues gained by injustice lead to violence. They are violent. And it is crime to do that. And so this is saying here, the Lord is active in our decisions when we please him in our way with our responsibilities. He takes it and he gives peace in the little that we have with righteousness and faith. He gives peace with that. He gives protection, provision. He is in all of it because the man's heart plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can think what you want. You can plan what you want. But for well or ill for you, the Lord will establish the outcome of those plans. Let's think about this carefully. And this really sums up the whole series. We want in our flesh, we want God to be open to our plans. Everything we pray, everything we do in serving Him, can become a way of gaming him into being open to our plans and delivering to us the outcomes we want. And so we make decisions based on a certainty that our plans are the right plans and our goals are the right goals and our motivations are pure. All of this we're certain about. If only we could get God to be open to it. And so, let me teach you the magic words. I'll teach you the prayer that God needs to hear in order for him to be open to your plans. And then, when you pray that prayer and have faith that God's going to deliver that outcome, he will, of course, if you weaken and doubt that God is going to deliver the outcome, it's kind of doubtful whether he will, but that will be your fault. Okay? See how this works? Certainty in spirituality is a kind of death because it freezes our corruption in place, closes our plans to the influence of God and the power of God, and it hardens our hearts. Certainty in spirituality is a kind of death there are only a few things that we need to be certain about. If we're certain about these things, everything else falls in place. God is to be feared that is certain. God has paid for my sins in Jesus Christ. Done. Certain. It's on the books. I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Done. He paid for it. It is finished. And I will be conformed to his image throughout my life and I will be glorified in his image when I am dead and raised from the dead. Certain, done, finished. Cancer. 
riches, success, ambition. Not certain. If you need to be certain about those things in order for your spirituality to give you comfort and security, if you need to be certain that your plans will come to pass in order to walk with God, know this, you're not walking with God, you're worshiping an idol. And that idol will fail. So, if that's not how it's supposed to work, how is it supposed to work? It's actually the opposite of what we just said. Instead of trying to open God up to our plans, our job is to leave our plans open. If you have big decisions to make, don't make them. Break them down. Line them up. Make the smaller decisions. Take one step at a time. It's all you can do anyway, so why be rash? Make the small decisions and leave those plans open for how God will lead you through that fog. And then leave God's principles closed. They are eternally true, closed, done, finished, perfect. Leave them alone. Let your plans be changed by God's principles. Let us not try to change God's principles with our plans. That's the wrong way around. Beloved, if we make decisions this way, I am assured of one thing. We will be a church that walks with God and we will see God work in our lives, in our hearts, and in our ministries. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we bring the ushers forward for the benevolent offering and as we meditate on this sermon, we ask that you by your Holy Spirit, would give us a profound peace and certainty in our faith in who you are, in our confidence in Jesus Christ. Set our confidence there. And if there is someone here who does not know this, has not come to a close with Christ, and as that person starts to pray to you, Father, forgive my sins, I've gotten this wrong. Lord Jesus, come live in me by your Holy Spirit. Give me a new birth so that I can live for you as this person pours out their heart to you right now. I pray that you would answer them right now and that your Holy Spirit would come and indwell them and give them an assurance that they now belong to you and that they live to glorify you and that you are their God and King and that your steadfast love on them is forever. And Lord, as we give this benevolent offering, it goes out to meet people in their needs, wrestling with many decisions. 
we pray that you would use this to give encouragement to them, that they are not alone, that they are loved by you and by us. Use this offering in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, while we take that offering, it looks like I've got a couple of questions here. One is um, just a, a comment from Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Uh, friends, this is worth looking at. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So they're not going to turn that into a, an inspiring meme, are they? That's, that's not going to show up on Facebook to cheer people up on, tomorrow morning. Um, because what we want to hear is, you're the best. You've got this. You, you know what's... You're, and this, this is all a lie. I'm not the best, I haven't got this, and I don't know what is best for me. And anybody who tells me that I do is flattering me. I know the Lord. And the best decisions that I make are to follow Him and please Him and He takes care of me. Now that's a pretty good deal if the King of Kings takes care of me. I don't have to worry about a thing. I've got good reason to be encouraged if I'm putting my confidence there. But if my confidence is in myself, old Jeremiah is coming after me and saying, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now watch this, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You know what this means? If your motivations are mixed and out of that mixture you say to the Lord, I'm going to trust you in fear and trembling because I haven't got this. And there's this mixture of sin in me and desire to please you. And I don't know which is which and I can't unmix them so I'm just going to trust you. You know what this verse is saying? The Lord will give to you according to your ways righteousness by what? Faith. You will be righteous because you trust God. And that's what this is saying. Now, if out of that mixture you're saying, no, I'm not mixed, I am totally right, God needs to come around to my point of view, he will give to you according to the fruit of your ways. So, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, we need to understand this, and we need to understand that as negative as they are about the, the ways we kid ourselves, they are profoundly positive because when we put our confidence in the Lord who searches our minds and hearts, we have the best reasons to be confident, joyful, thankful, and to live with expectation and hope. Um, let's look at another one. Uh, oh, this is just a comment. You're spunky today. 
Yes, I am. Doggone it, this stuff is, uh, this is important. <laughs> so, <laughs> so guilty. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This comment from the scriptures, really not a comment at all, just the scripture itself serving as a perfect way to be blessed and give a benediction this morning. In all your ways, as you leave this place, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight.